0: Welcome back. So this topic today is, I think, a little bit closer to home for me yeah. than for you, but it is for you as well, because you've had to deal with me. Um, today's topic is eating disorders. We are going to do other episodes about mm-hmm. eating disorders that will include other people, such as my mother who also has to deal with me, um, but also she has a doctorate in health sciences with a focus in eating disorders, so she brings another side of the issue as well. Um, I guess a little background. Um, I've had an eating disorder uh, for roughly, uh, I guess, almost 25 years. It started about when I was 10, and it for those of you that don't really know much about eating disorders you don't start with you know restricting all of your meals or using other maladaptive behaviors it kind of starts slow most of the time and for me it started very slow and you know it was just some days I missed breakfast or you know I wasn't eating lunch at school and after a while Um, the psychologist at my school, the guidance counselor called my parents and told them I wasn't eating. And my mom told them, well, then she's just not hungry. And it wasn't until I was in Tampa for college and basically dying um, that we finally started trying to get a hold on it. And it took the doctors telling my mom and me after an endoscopy, that if I continued on the track yeah. I was on, I would be dead in three years. Um, I am disappointed in myself and sad to say that even with that news, I didn't stop. Yeah. I um, I did go to my first, like, <clears throat> treatment. I did yeah. um, intensive outpatient, or IOP, um, in Tampa, but... I would kind of like go there and put on a show and ask questions and talk and do what everybody wanted me to do, and then go home and use symptoms. So it took a long time for me to actually get into my first bout of recovery, which was when I was 21 and I went to treatment in Philadelphia at the Renfrew Center and I was gone for about a month and I relapsed within three days of getting out because I left before me, before I was ready. I left because the <laughs> one rule that th- my mom gave them was don't tell me how much it was costing them. Yeah. And they called me in one day to talk to me about how much it was costing them. And within a week I was home. Yeah. Um, I've tried treatment a few times. I've never gone back to residential, but I've gotten to know a few hospitals in Florida. I've gotten to know a few hospitals in New York. I've gotten to know places in England. Um, I've gotten more blood work for treatment centers than I like to think about. I think I've had more needles in me from blood draws than I even have tattoos. And I have a (laughs) lot of tattoos. Um, Eating disorders are very difficult. You know, a lot of people, when they approach the topic with someone who has an eating disorder, the first thing they say is, well, I don't get it. Why can't you just eat? And I remember when Leif and I started dating, we were sitting on his roof. And I was trying to explain it to him. And he was like, well, I don't get it. Can I just get you a hamburger? Yeah. And I was like, no. And it doesn't work like that. <clears throat> and it took a while, but by the time I got out of residential and moved back to New York, Leaf was like a pro at yeah. eating disorder support. Like he had read every article he could find. He asked questions. He, you know, anything he could do to help himself, help me, he did.
1: And he visited you. He did. did he get to go to groups and stuff when he.
0: Not when we were not when I was in Philly. Okay, but when I went back to New York, I was still in day, and then I or I was in IOP, and then day, and then IOP. Um, basically, for those of you that don't know, the sequence of care is usually Renfrew, which or not Renfrew, residential, which is twenty-four hour care, to then day treatment, which is you spend the whole day there, so it's like a job. It's like eight hours that you spend in a treatment facility. And then you can go home, and that's five days a week. And then IOP, which is intensive outpatient, which is three days a week, and you do it for, like, three hours. Yeah. When I left residential, I went to IOP. So I went from 24-hour care to, to three days with three hours, so nine <clears throat> hours a week. Yeah. But when I came back, Beef did go to groups and he went to therapy sessions and he asked questions to my therapist and he asked questions during groups. And, you know, if I was on a meal plan, he was on it with me. Yeah. We had an open door policy with the bathroom after meals. But because I had to have the door open, he kept the door open. Yeah. If I did it, he did it. I had to stop drinking. He stopped drinking. So to celebrate me coming back from treatment, we all had shots of chocolate milk. Um so I'm I'm very, very appreciative for how Leaf handled that time in my life because yeah. without him, I would not be here. There's yeah. no doubt in my mind that I wouldn't be here. And there's no doubt in my family's minds. If it was not for him, I would not be here.
1: Yeah, I think I could say <laughs> the difference in seeing you when you were in Tampa, because that's when it was very known to really all of I mean and yeah. me at the time.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and seeing your nose dives, and when you kind of like fell deep into it and then, you know, going to treatment and seeing how Leaf did take it on because he was very, I don't want to say, he wasn't harsh, but he was very like, he was like the stern you needed that I think everybody else was scared to give you.
0: I think what's funny about that is he wasn't always that way. When we were first got together and I was dealing with it, he cried more than I did. Yeah, and it got to the point where one day I actually looked at him and I said, "I can't take care of me and, and you. you, so you need to balls up and figure out how to do this." Yeah, because I'm breaking, I'm dying. Yeah, I can't, I can't do both. Yeah, and he cried, um, and then he took it to heart, and after that. You know, he was amazing and the greatest support. And, you know, I know it wasn't easy for him. Yeah. Because there were days, you know, we were together about five years. There were days where he would take off work because he needed to rush me to the hospital. And he would sit in the hospital with me all day and read a book because I was too high on morphine from the pain of what I was doing. Yeah. So I wasn't awake. But he would just sit there and read a book. And I remember waking up sometimes and he'd just be sitting there. You know, if I needed water, he brought me water. There's one time we went there. I mean, every time we went there, he helped me go to the bathroom. But there was one time we went there and it was gross because I, I, I was on my period. Yeah. And he helped me go to the bathroom because I was high on morphine and I couldn't do it myself. Yeah. So, you know that was a bond I never wanted us to have, but you know, he was there, no problems, no issues. Yeah. And I feel bad because he did it way too many times, but it never, you know, it never showed the toll that I knew it was taking on mm-hmm. him. Yeah. You know, if um, my fear of food for a very long time was stuffing mm-hmm. and his mom loved making stuffing and there was one trip we went up, upstate to their house upstate and she made stuffing and I hid in the bedroom, not just for the meal. I hid in the bedroom the rest of the night Yeah, because I couldn't be near the kitchen because stuffing had been in the yeah. kitchen yeah. and he would like, you know, was just like, okay, it's okay. He brought me the food that I would eat into the room. He never tried to force me out of the room. He never, I think at one point later in the night we went and sat on the back deck. Yeah. Um, He was just so understanding of it. And, you know, he got me to start eating steak again, which Mm -hmm. was my other fear food. And we went to this place that it was like $10 steaks, but the steaks were like the size of my forearm. And amazing. Like the best steaks I've ever had. Yeah. And we ended up going there every Wednesday for a long time. But the first time we went and I actually ate a steak, I took a bite and started crying and ran to the bathroom. We were there with his brother and his girlfriend at the time. Yeah. And they didn't know anything about what was going on with me. So, and Leaf, you know, kept my privacy. And yeah. he was just like, you know, she's just going through something right now. And he checked on me and, you know, we got through it. And we we worked on all of those things together. Yeah. and. You know, I'm, I'm so, I can't say it enough. And if anybody reads mine and my mom's book, um, on my, my story throughout my eating disorder, I dedicate part of that book to him because he is such a huge part of my recovery process. And, you know, I, recovery is not linear. Recovery is not perfect. Um, I don't do it very well, I guess I could say. I, um, I struggle with recovery a lot. I'm a little over a year in recovery currently, and I don't do it well. I can admit that. I, I have bad days. I have bad weeks. Um, but I know how to get through them now. Yeah. Whereas before. You, you didn't. I didn't. And a lot of that I kind of, at least with my last relapse, I throw at Mike's feet. Yeah. Because I wouldn't have relapsed if I had been with a supportive. Yes. Genuine, nice person. Yeah. And, you know, him staying out till four o'clock in the morning and not telling me where he was and him taking food from me because it wasn't healthy, even though I hadn't eaten in three days. Yeah. Him not caring that I made him breakfast every Sunday, but I didn't eat anything. Yeah. And he didn't notice the only time he actually showed genuine concern was when he came home when I was purging.
1: Yeah.
0: I didn't hear him come in and he just showed up behind me while I was in the bathroom. And he was like, should I call your mom? And I was like, no, I was like, you don't need to. I said, you don't care. So no. And when we had the intervention for me that July on our way, he was there. And on our way to my parents, he said, do we really have to do this? Oh. And he's like, why can't we just try and figure it out, just the two of us? And I was like, because this is so much more than you would ever be able to handle. Yeah. And honestly, at the intervention, my brother's now fiance um, was more supportive in helping me than he was, than, than Mike was. You know, she called me every day to see if I wanted to grab lunch or just check and see if I had lunch. You know, Mm -hmm. she was, she was always there anytime I needed help with a meal, she was there for me and Mike wasn't at all. And with all of the horrible things that happened in our relationship, I had nowhere to go but back into my eating disorder. Yeah. And you know, that was my safety net. That was comfortable For me. And, uh, I also did it for some, like, vain reasons. Yeah. Like...
1: Well, he contributed to that as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, if I had felt like he was attracted to me... Yeah. I wouldn't have been so obsessed with what I put in my body, or what I didn't, um, just to try and lose weight so that he would look at me. And... Nothing made a difference. Yeah. It didn't matter what weight I lost, it didn't matter anything. And he actually told me that. He told me that he was not physically attracted to me. Yeah. And that was the day we moved into our second apartment together and the day I found him on the roof of our apartment building in the car with another woman in the back seat. While well, his sister, my brother and I were downstairs moving all of our shit into our new apartment so that his sister could have her own bedroom. So, I feel like that relationship contributed to a lot of what I've gone through over the last couple of years. Yeah. Because until him, I was in recovery for like two, almost three years. You were doing really, really, really well. I was well. doing great. And unfortunately, with any addiction, there are triggers. <clears throat> and he <throat> was a huge one for me. And. It was very hard for me to understand that it had nothing to do with me. It yeah. had to do with his insecurities and who he is. Yeah, It didn't have anything to do with me, but I just felt so alone. And no, and the
1: reality of it is is that you loved him mm-hmm. and wanted to be with him. Not sure why. So I feel like that's also, you know... When you read up on eating disorders, it's not just purging your food. Yeah. There are eating people who have eating disorders are people that are obsessed with eating a certain amount of calories that Mm -hmm. your body, you actually need more Mm -hmm. and you're doing the bare minimum because you feel like you have to be at a certain weight. Your body has to look a certain way. You can only eat certain foods because if you don't, you're going to, so that's a big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, there's actually a girl that I grew up with that went that route mm-hmm. and it wasn't until probably mm-hmm. two years ago that she had announced on social media that she had an eating disorder mm-hmm. and it, her obsession. Cause everybody, she became like a personal trainer and like she went the whole route, mm-hmm. but she was killing herself. Yeah. And you know, I had said, I remember looking at her pictures one of these day, one day. And I remember telling Kyle, I'm like, she just doesn't look healthy. Like, her waist was like this big Mm -hmm. and up here, you know, we we, we talked about this when we talked about Mm Tim, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny little waist and bulked up here because you're just lifting weights, but her body wasn't proportionate. She didn't look right. So I feel like, you know, being in a relationship sometimes can be a trigger can be a downfall. Your family can also be a downfall. You had talked about, you know, your grandfather and how he had the scale.
0: That was really, that was really hard because, you know, I, um, now my grandfather was my role model. He was everything to me, but his weight fluctuated very frequently throughout my life. You know, I look back through all the pictures and he just almost doesn't look like the same person depending on the year. Yeah. And it was because of his obsession with weight and food and perfectionism. Yeah. That was a big thing for him. And, you know... He wanted everyone around him to be <clears throat> a certain way me. because he felt that that's the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. And I get that, but I get that because I also think in an unhealthy way. yeah. and you know I I feel like people think that only the people that are you know, skeletons, They're the only ones with real eating disorders. No. And I remember when I went into treatment, I was not the thinnest person there. Yeah. There were a few girls that were much thinner than me. And I remember, and the girl that got um, checked in with me had a peg tube. She was 14. And there were a few people there with peg tubes and that had just gotten out of the hospital and had feeding equipment in their stomachs and had just gotten it out and showing their scars and all that stuff. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, I'm not sick enough to be here. Yeah. I got a death sentence, but I wasn't sick enough to be there because I didn't look like them. And that's the sad part about treatment centers is that we spend a good portion of our time comparing ourselves to everyone else and thinking to ourselves, well, we're not as sick as that person. They did it better. Yeah. And I have a friend currently – who is suffering. I have two friends that are suffering and I, one of them hasn't answered me in a couple of weeks. So I honestly don't know if she's still alive. And sadly, that's what I think when I don't hear from her Yeah, because her pancreas is failing. She's on a colostomy bag. They removed part of her colon. They removed part of her small intestine. She, she's, and she doesn't want to live anymore yeah. because she's in her late thirties and she has nothing. And you know, You'd think that the first time that she got the colostomy bag and she would wake up with the colostomy bag broken and covered in her own shit, that that would make her not want to relapse. Yeah. But she did. As soon as the colostomy bag was reversed, she relapsed. And now they had to remove part of her colon. They had to remove part of her small intestine. She's back on a colostomy bag. And her doctor told her, you did this to yourself. Yeah. And I told her, you know. How, you know, what does it take? And I have another friend who she is trying for her recovery, but she is very sick. And she is that, you know, person that you can look at. And, you know, she looks like the, the stereotypical anorexic person. Yeah. But <clears throat> for me, looking at them, and looking at where they are, I have two sides of my mind. Mm-hmm. I have the side that thinks the universe for my recovery, and thanks, you know, that to my support that I have the ability and the strength to be in recovery. And then I have the eating disorder mind that yeah. thinks well, that didn't happen to me, did I do it wrong? Should I restart, basically? Should I relapse so that I can do it right? And I know that sounds crazy to some people. But for me, that that was my life. Like, we talked about before in another episode, I've never really felt like I fit in. I never felt like I belonged. And for many, many, many years, my eating disorder was my best friend. Yeah. That was what I trusted. I trusted the voice that said all those horrible things about me. And that I could just accomplish that one thing if I just didn't eat that meal or if I purged that meal or I took that laxative. You know, like, that, that that was the truth for me. Yeah. For a very, very, very long time. And now there are days... Where you know, I talked about in the long distance episode that I, I don't feel like there's something wrong with me that Canada left mm-hmm. and I don't I don't feel like I did something wrong. But now that it's been almost two months since he left, there is a part of me sometimes that thinks like maybe if I had been thinner.
1: Yeah.
0: And I know that it's not logical. Yeah. I know that he had no issues with the way I looked. But I have that voice in my head that says, you know, maybe look at it this side. You know, maybe, 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 you know, the voice will turn certain things that people say around into a horrible way Mm -hmm. that then my mind starts thinking, well, maybe they were actually saying this instead of what they said. And like, I can do that with almost anything. Yeah. And it's a horrible, horrible attribute I guess because I can turn anything into something derogatory about me that then means that I should relapse because that would fix everything yeah and I have to remind myself that you know recovery sucks I'm not I'm not going to sugarcoat that recovery sucks a lot of the time but what sucks more is not being able to stand up without blacking out yeah Is your hair falling out, your face breaking out, your nails breaking, not having the trust of your friends and family, you know, not being able to go out with your friends or your family because there might be food there that you can't be near Yeah, or you don't have an out to go purge or you just took four laxatives so you can't go sit in a restaurant because in the next few hours you're going to be shitting your life away. Yeah, Like there's, you know eating disorders are isolating because they convince you that no one understands you. Yeah. And it makes you feel so alone because every eating disorder is different. Like you said, there's some people that count calories. There's some people that over exercise. There's some people that purge. There's some people that use laxatives. There's some people that just restrict. There's some people that do all of it. Yeah, You know, it's, it's eating disorders are different depending on the person and you don't have to be, you know, ridiculously thin to have an eating disorder. I you mean, not
1: gets that all the time. Yeah. Because he's so skinny. But I think another thing with it, too, is genetics plays a big role yeah, in your body. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those that know my husband know he's incredibly slim. And I can't tell you how many times people have been like, you just need to eat a cheeseburger. Well, what they don't know is that my husband will well, out eat anybody.
0: I've watched me eat an entire box of donuts for breakfast. And he gains no weight. No.
1: It's just his dad was the same way. His brother is the same way. His grandfather was the same. Like, it's, it's just what it is. And then you have me, who's always been heavy, because the majority of my family is heavy. So I feel like, you know, Kyle will eat all day. I have to go shopping for him constantly and buy him snacks because, like, he will eat all day. And then there's me where I'm like, I could eat one meal a day and be fine. Mm -hmm. So there's different, I think, perspectives on eating disorders and what they look like. Mm -hmm. And it's not stereotypical to say... Somebody who's really skinny. Oh, they definitely have a eating disorder. They, no, they, they might just, not.
0: They could just have, you know, a thyroid problem.
1: That's like people that are heavy. They may not, they, they may be heavy, but it may be genetics or they may have a thyroid problem yeah.
0: or, so one or their the cortisol
1: levels or there's a lot that or comes hormones. into, or hormones, it comes into play. Yeah. Um, so I feel like people need to understand mm. that too. But, you know, I feel like over the years, cause I fondly remember when you were in Tampa, and getting the phone call after your procedure, mm-hmm. and you telling me, like, this is it. And I remember how upset your mom was. And I remember the phone call of you telling me, hey, I'm going into recovery, I'm going into residential, and getting the phone call from you, and you telling me about Leaf, and watching the roller coaster that it was. Because I feel like when you were in New York after you got out of residential, it was a roller coaster. Absolutely. Because you were still trying to really figure out how to balance being out of recovery and also or being out of residential, going into recovery, and then you kind of flip-flop back and forth where you would be okay a certain period of time and then nosedive. And then you would kind of bounce back from it and you'd kind of have like a hiccup. And, and a lot of it, I think, was triggers mm-hmm. for you. Um,
0: but at that point in time, I honestly, I couldn't handle anything. anything. No, you got not any little tiny thing that went wrong was like an explosion in my life and I could not handle it. And it honestly was just because I really wanted an excuse to relapse Yeah. and it was a roller coaster because I was trying to live both lives. Yeah. I was trying to live the life that everybody wanted me to live where I was in recovery and I was doing great. But I wanted to be able to do that while still using eating disorder symptoms yeah. and not give up it. Yeah, I just couldn't, I, I, I couldn't fathom giving up that part of my life because in the way that my, my mind worked was people come and go. Mm-hmm. Your eating disorder doesn't, yeah. your eating disorder is always there for you. Yeah, And you know, Leaf could break up with me tomorrow, but, you know, what would still be there? Eating disorder. Well,
1: when we talked about anxiety, it's also a control thing. Mm-hmm. You could control every aspect of your eating disorder.
0: And I think that's when things got dangerous when I was in England. Yeah. Because I relapsed in England, you know, after Leaf and I ending and being away from home and Basilio dying and, yeah. you know, just not doing as well there as I had hoped probably could have been because my mind wasn't working because I had relapsed um but I remember there was one night a few of my friends there knew that I had relapsed yeah and one of them actually emailed my mother and told her and I didn't know that I didn't find that out till I got home
1: yeah
0: um but I remember one night I was laying on the floor of my bathroom having just few symptoms and I was staring at the ceiling, imagining those, like, uh, glow-in-the-dark stars mm-hmm. on the ceiling. And I laid there because earlier that day, I had said I was in control. that I was in control of the situation. I could, you know, every addict's line, I can stop if I want to. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I just don't want to. But I could do it. And I remember laying there on the floor and crying because I tried so hard not to do that. Yeah. And I laid there realizing I had no control. Yeah. I, I, that I was just completely out of control. And I remember calling my best friend in England and having her come over and together we called my mom and I told my mom, I need help. I'm not okay. Yeah. And this was a a couple months before I moved home and she's like, we're going to fly you home now. I'm like, no, we're not. Yeah. You know, I'll up my therapy. I'll do whatever I need to do from here, but I'm not leaving England yet. Yeah. And I know that was very hard for her. But I just, I needed that time, mm-hmm. I guess, to just finish living out my dream. Yeah.
1: Well, it was a big one for you. It was.
0: It's and really
1: important to you. And yeah. my
0: team had to approve me going over there. Yeah. You know, my therapist, my psychiatrist, everybody, my primary, my entire treatment team had to approve me going there. Or my parents weren't going to pay for it. Yeah. I wasn't going to be able to go if they all didn't agree. And they did. They all let me go. Yeah. And I think there was some part of me that was disappointed because they let me go and I feel like I let them down. Yeah. But I spend most of my life feeling like I let my family down and that I'm a burden because I know things would be easier and probably they'd have a lot more money if they hadn't, you know... Had to pay for hospital visits and blood draws and doctor's appointments and treatment and therapy sessions every week and psychiatrists and nutritionists and you know everything else that I've tried, yeah, you know, that's a lot of money, yeah. And you know, my mom always says that it doesn't matter, that whatever I need for my health and to keep me alive, she'll do, yeah. But I also know that it makes things very hard for my family. On top of, you know, just the worrying. Yeah. You know, when we were writing um, my book, our book, I Had My Shadow, Not My Friend, we asked my dad and my brother for, like, quotes about how they felt about my eating disorder. And it was the first time I'd ever actually heard my dad say anything about it. Yeah. But his response was that the thing that terrified him most was waking up every morning and thinking, that he wasn't sure if I was going to be alive or not. Yeah. And that killed me. Because there was a period of time where my mom and I kept a lot of the stuff going on with me. Just between you Just between up. us. So that my dad didn't worry. And then my mom went away on a work trip. And I had to go to the hospital. Yeah. And my dad was the one to take me. And my dad doesn't like hospitals. He's yeah. terrified of hospitals because his dad died in one. And... He, but he took me. And he sat with me in the hospital, just like Leif did. Just like my mom did on all the time she had to take me. And through my morphine haze. I don't know why they always just give me morphine. But um, through the haze, I remember my dad pacing. Nervous. And, like, he'd, like, pace and then look at me. And then pace and then look oh, at me. Well, I think me. it was probably
1: his anxiety at the hospital. And then when you're on morphine, you're, like, dormant. <sighs> yep. Yeah. So that fear that he said he was scared of that was probably setting in yeah, as a reality for him at that point.
0: And I remember him calling my mom and my mom like kind of guiding him through how to be at the hospital with yeah. me and like what questions to ask the doctors and all of that stuff. And, you know, I, it's sad because there's always two sides mm-hmm. to everything that I think about because... It does bother me how much my family has sacrificed in order for me to try and be healthy. Yeah. And to, you know, continue having the opportunity to live my life. But there's also still the part of me that's like, you know, they could always desert me, but the eating disorder won't. Yeah. And I use that thought sometimes. And I I, I think that's why when I texted you a couple weeks ago and said I was struggling with my meals... I think that was kind of the mindset that I was in was he left. Yeah. He deserted me, but I still had the eating disorder. Yeah. That was still there. And I needed that control because, you know, Canada took the control away from me. Yeah. I have no control over anything with him. And I needed something that I knew something that was comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And as uncomfortable as eating disorders are, because it's not the unknown, mm-hmm. it's comfortable. Yeah. The pain is comfortable because I know it. I know what to expect. There, there are no, you know, as up to this point, there is no secret behind it. Yeah. You know, I know what to expect. I know to expect the blackouts. I know to expect the hair loss. I know expect the break, the face breaking out. I know to expect issues with my teeth. I know issues with my, my hands. Yeah. You know, I, I know those things, but you know, that fear of the unknown, Mm -hmm. the fear of the future of all the things that scare me now about the future that I wasn't scared of Two months ago. It's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it makes it very, very challenging for me not to give in into the eating disorder now. Yeah. And I try and use the thoughts that I, that kept me in recovery in the first place when he left. I try and use those thoughts. Like, you know, he would never want me to do that. And if I numb out the feelings and I numb out, you know, what I had with him, but the longer it goes mm-hmm. and the fact that it's not getting easier makes me want to go back. Yeah. It, it makes me kind of alter that thought. And it, it, and a lot of people don't help.
1: Oh well, yeah.
0: You know, telling me that he obviously didn't give a shit about me because he threw me out. That doesn't help me stay in recovery. No. Honestly, you want to talk shit about him, I'm not really going to listen to it. But do that on your own time. Don't throw it in my face. Yeah. Because all it's going to make me think is, well, what if they're right? Yeah. And then all I'm going to do is spiral, which I've been doing for the last seven weeks anyways, just in different ways. Yeah. And it's just eating disorders are complicated. And unfortunately, even though eating disorders kill more people every year than any other mental health issue, there's still so many people that don't want to talk about it. Yeah. That it's just a hidden disease. And, you know, you look at the people in the government and the insurance companies, they don't even cover eating disorders. Yeah. There are certain states that do, but it's solely because someone important died from So there's, I think in, I think it's in like Michigan or something. They have a law about insurance is covering eating disorders because I think it's like the governor's daughter died from an eating disorder. So then they cared.
1: Well, I feel like that goes hand in hand with mental health. Mental health was talked about for the longest time Mm -hmm. until people started dying from suicide Mm -hmm. and from being schizophrenic or manic depressive or so I feel like it's. There's, you know, there's a stigma with it, yeah, and people don't realize that it can look very different, Mm -hmm. but how it can literally kill you.
0: And it's not even just the, I mean, the eating disorder takes a toll on every part of your body: your brain, your heart, your other organs, your your skin, your bodily functions, everything. Everything is impacted by eating disorders. But a lot of the people that sometimes die from the eating disorders, it's not the eating disorder that kills them. Yeah. You know, I have a friend that walked into oncoming traffic on the highway and committed suicide because she couldn't handle the eating disorder anymore. Yeah. And she didn't feel there was anywhere else to go. Yeah. You know, I have another friend that died from a drug overdose. She was a cocaine addict. And she did cocaine, so she didn't eat. Yeah. It was her way of not being hungry, and it killed her. And those are all things that come from the eating disorder Yeah, because it changes everything. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's terrifying to see my friends like this. Yeah. But I, like every other person with an eating disorder, this is one thing that's very common. I constantly think, well, that can't happen to me. Yeah. It's a superman complex. Yeah, like I I had a friend that I visited in Tampa after I got my wisdom teeth. I looked like a chipmunk. Um, She had a feeding tube in her stomach. We went up there to say our goodbyes. And even seeing her in the hospital and knowing her from treatment. Yeah. I still looked at her and was like, wow, that really sucks. And I'm going to miss her. But that will never happen to me. Yeah. And thankfully, somehow she came back from it. And now she got through medical school, she's in recovery, she's married, and she has twins. Perfect. So amazing. That's fabulous. I'm so happy for her. But we literally went there to say our goodbyes to her because she was dying. Yeah. And my friend in New York, you know, she has all of these issues. Her heart doesn't work very well. Like, she has destroyed her body and her mind and her life. And all of the dreams she had are gone. Yeah. Yeah. And I still look at her, I'm like, well, that wouldn't happen to me. And I'm just like, that's such a dangerous thought. Mm-hmm. Because continuously saying, well, I can do what I want because that's not going to happen to me. Those people had that thought. Yeah. And that's what happened to them. So, you know, I, I want to be there for my friends. You know, I want to go to New York and see her because I don't want the next time I see her to be at her funeral. Yeah. Um, which I wouldn't see her at her funeral. She's Jewish. It would be covered. But, you know, I don't I don't want the next time I see her or to be near her, she'd be in a casket. Yeah. But for my mental health and my recovery, I can't be near her. Yeah. It's hard enough being on FaceTime with her. It's a hard line. It's like a, a hard line to walk. Yeah. Because like I want, I one of my other friends from treatment and I were planning on flying out to Arizona to see our other friend who's struggling, and we both came to the conclusion like we're not stable enough to do it. To do it, and like we want to, And we want to be there for her and we want to give the support and let these people know they're not alone, but we also have to take care of ourselves. Yeah, and. Sometimes the biggest trigger are the people that are living the exact same life that I'm living, Yeah. but it's hitting them differently. And, you know, I I haven't, except for the week, a few weeks ago, I haven't used symptoms in a very long time. But there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about it. Yeah. I wake up every morning still. I've been in recovery 13 months almost. And there has not been one day where I haven't woken up and thought, I'm not going to eat today. Yeah. And I fight it. And I eat usually. But every day I still wake up and think that. Every day I still wake up and think that I should relapse. That I should just give up. That I should just, especially lately, that I should just hide it in my bed. Yeah. And, you know, just Be. Like a, I don't know, like a plant. Don't need food. Just need water and sunshine. They do, they do,
1: they do need food and water, though. An artificial plant, maybe. Not, but you're it's not, not. I'm an artificial plant. You are not an artificial human being.
0: Uh, no, that would make life easier. No, wouldn't. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't be real. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Wally.
1: Calm down. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's hard, too, because, like I said, I've seen you. Tampa was scary for me, and I think after Stripper Boy is where I really got concerned.
0: I remember my first day at Hope House because I called you, and I said all I wanted was to hear from him. Yeah. And to tell me that it was going to be okay. And I think... When you, got that, him, you got him to call me. Yeah. I remember he, he, he didn't call me. He texted he me. He texted you. He texted me and said everything is going to be okay.
1: I remember being terrified because I didn't know if you were going to walk away from it. I was scared after your appointment. And I was like, first of all, I know your mom. There ain't no fucking way in hell this woman is going to let anything happen to her. And then everything happened with him, and I knew there was a lot that your mom did not know. Mm-hmm. And it was never my instinct. I mean, Mama Op, if you're listening, I apologize. But it was never my instinct to be like, I need to call her mom and tell her, mm-hmm. because I didn't want to break that trust with you and I. But I fondly remember having a conversation with him, yeah, and telling him, "You're killing my sister."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And telling him, you know, if anything happens to her, I don't give a fuck what roof you jump off of, what ninja skills you have. I'm coming to New York and I will kill you. But I think that was probably the scaredest I was. In New York, I feel like there were a few scares when, like, Leaf would message me and be like, hey, we're going to the hospital. But I think Tampa for me was probably the hardest. And then after Mike, when we went to dinner... Uh you, Madison, and I, and I saw how broken you were. I remember looking at you and being like, "You have to push through this, yeah, you cannot let him be the reason that you break all of this recovery because at that point, up until him, you were I was doing great. You were on an uphill path, yeah, and you were probably the best you had been in a long time. Mm-hmm. And I remember calling Kyle when we left and telling him, I'm like, he's like, how is she? I was like, it's bad. I said, I thought it was, I've seen her bad before. But I said, I'm really worried that that this is going to be like, this is going to be it. So I think that perspective is very scary because it's very, for me, I feel like because, you know, it's not discussed, it's not talked about. It's very similar because it's basically what you're doing is it's suicide
0: very slow painful suicide
1: so it's basically waiting for the other shoe to drop
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I remember you know like I said when I would get the phone calls or when you like a few weeks ago when you texted me and I'm like I know you don't want to hear this but you have to push yourself like you have mm-hmm. to and I don't ever you know that's the hard part I think when you know somebody eat with an eating disorder because you can't just be like just fucking eat a cheeseburger yeah it doesn't work so, I think you have to learn, you know, I think over the years, hearing you speak about it, reading the your books and seeing you go through it, and you know the conversations you've had with your mom and being present for those conversations, and you know getting the knowledge from you of what you're going through, I think I know how to approach it a little bit better, yeah, um I'm always gonna have that big sister in me though that's like i don't if I have to come down there and like cook for you, we will um but I feel like it's very hard because, you know, somebody had made the mention, you know, of Karina, her sister is suicidal. Mm-hmm. And she's, there's been many a times where she's like called from her car and be like, tell my kids, I love them. And they've had to call the cops to look for her. Um, And her mom had said, you know, because her uncle killed himself. Um, her mom had said, you know, I don't want anything to happen to my kid, but in the same sense, if it did, I I wouldn't have to worry anymore. Yeah. I wouldn't have that feeling of, when is it going to happen?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I feel like that's very similar too with addiction. You know, it's almost, you fight, fight, fight to get your loved one clean, but it's almost kind of like a relief at the same sense. It's devastating but it's a relief because they're out, of pain. they're out of pain. You're not worried about, you know, a drug deal gone wrong and something, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like it's hard because I know when you're struggling. Yeah. I know very well when you're struggling. Sometimes you don't even have to say anything. I can just hear it in your voice or I can physically see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just from, you know, it's, we're talking 15 years. Yeah. Uh. But I think it's very a very hard line for people to walk because you do have to tread lightly
0: mm-hmm.
1: because you don't want to be a trigger. So I think that's very hard and I you know we talked about having your mom on I think giving that perspective of you know her PhD background but also what it's like to go through as a parent mm-hmm. you know I we talked about this before with you know Madison, I pray to God that there is never a man. Or someone that makes her feel like she's not enough. And she's made comments, you know, here and there, you know, she's into dance. So I always worry with dance of course. because it's a, basically a physique sport, mm-hmm. you know, that she will always think that she doesn't look a certain way or something doesn't fit a certain way. And I make sure every morning, you know, I'm always saying to her, do you know how beautiful you are? Why are you so beautiful? You know, and she'll say, because you and daddy made me that way, or because God made me that way. Um, and I want her to know that. I want her to be very comfortable in her skin. But I feel like when, you know, you struggle with somebody with an eating disorder, there is no comfort for them. Nope. What they, they see in the mirror and what you see in the mirror are two completely different images. Yes. So I can sit here and tell you you're the one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen on the planet. But when you look in the mirror, that's not what you see.
0: I always describe that mirrors for me are like circus mirrors. Mm-hmm. They're warped. Yeah, like there's just
1: there's always something that's gonna be off.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, I, um, I have felt better about myself over mm-hmm. the last few months. Probably the last like six months. But I'm still not like yeah happy.
1: Well, I don't think you will be because of what you're going through. Yeah. But also because I don't feel as weird as it sounds. And if anybody's listening and they know the situation that she's going through, uh, this is my opinion and I'm going to stick to it. I feel like when you were with Canada, like you said, you didn't have that control because he didn't let you. And you. it was the first time I think I really saw – Where Ed was not a factor.
0: Not even a little bit.
1: There was no talk of it. There was no, you were just doing everything you needed to do. And I remember how you said, I'm not going to relapse. Because if I relapse, you know, that's it's taking away the happiness that I had. And it's going to make it worse.
0: I think the time, you know, the five, six months that I had with him is the longest period of time I've ever gone without using any symptoms. symptoms. I ate every meal. I didn't use laxatives. I didn't purge. I nothing. It was an extended period of time where not even that I didn't use symptoms. I didn't think, think of about it. symptoms. Yeah. Like it was the most healthy time in my life. Yeah. Because I didn't, Ed didn't control me at all. And I was happy. And I was with someone who, I respected his input and mm-hmm. his opinion and I trusted him so much that when he told me I was beautiful or you know yeah. when he would look at me even I could see myself the way he saw me yeah and I I loved that you know like I loved being with someone that I was just so comfortable with and just able to be myself yeah because I fit You know, I finally belonged somewhere and now I'm back to, you know, not having him and I'm back to not belonging and I'm back to not fitting and I'm back to not having a home and I'm back to everything that made me miserable when I was younger. Yeah. Because I don't have those things anymore. Yeah. And like I I said in the long distance, I appreciate that he he gave me that time. And he gave me those moments that I was able to look in the mirror and be comfortable in my own skin. I just, now I'm getting to the point where I almost kind of want to numb out. Yeah. Because now it's just a reminder that it's
1: gone. I think that's a big fear of mine, too, is that every time I have seen you relapse, it has been after a breakup.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And with him, it was completely different because you finally found a place. Yeah. So that is my biggest concern. And I tell Kyle, like, when you text me and something's going on and I don't respond, I'm like, oh, my God, I need you. I go into that panic. And it's I don't want you to think that you still can't text me. But I don't want you to think that you don't have that outlet. No, I know that's that big sister of me that's like, oh my fucking god, don't, nothing's gonna happen to my sister. Um, but I don't, I, you know, Kyle had he had made mention of it too. She's like, I feel like, and, and we've said this: when you fall, you fall hard. Yeah, and when you fall, you fall hard. So when you fall and have a downfall, like it, it it's it's hard.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely a person of extremes.
1: Yes. I, you are definitely go big or go home.
0: Yeah. And I don't, and I think that's also, you know, my doctors have said that's also part of the bipolar mm-hmm. is that I, so I don't, there's no gray area. Like, I don't have a gray area. Yeah. And I, I never have. Yeah. You know, like I'm either supremely happy or manic, falling apart. And there's no middle ground. I can fake a middle ground. I'm real good at faking a middle ground. Yes. But then as soon as I leave those situations, I'm so drained because I've just spent an hour, six hours, whatever it is. I spent so much time pretending to be something that I'm not yeah, and pretending I'm feeling a way that I'm not so I can make other people comfortable. Yeah, And I feel like living like that makes it harder to stay in recovery. And like right now, you know, I feel like I have to be a certain way to make everyone else comfortable because a lot of people in my life don't want me to still be sad about Canada. Yeah. And not like you don't want me to be sad about Canada. You don't want me to be sad because you understand where I'm coming from, but you just yeah. don't like seeing me sad. Yeah. They don't want me to be sad because they don't understand they don't why understand I it. felt that way for Canada. So they just figure I should just be over it by now. And they just don't get it.
1: And I feel like
0: we've talked about this in relationship
1: pasts. Um, people that have never had that or that have it already won't understand Mm -hmm. because I truly believe that home is not always just a place you go to. Yeah. It can be a person. So that's, you know, a big part of it too. I mean, I didn't get the luxury of meeting Canada, but I pray he listens. And if you're listening, thank you because you gave her the hope to realize one, that she is worth, all of the jewels in the world that you, how incredible you are, how beautiful you are and not just physically mentally. I mean, you are probably one of the strongest people that I know. And I feel like going through your eating disorder, I I always walked away saying that, like, I don't know how much more she can have thrown at her. And you were like, literally like a Phoenix, you rise from the ashes and you get through it. Not always the way everybody wants you to get through it. But you do get through it. Um So, Canada, God forbid, I pray you listen secretly. Uh, but if you are listening, I do appreciate that. Because you gave her the sense of knowing that for that time, Ed was not in control of your life. And it's for the first time, I think, ever Yeah, you've had that. And... It was just nice to see the alley I know smile and be happy and not worry about getting a phone call in the middle of the night that you relapsed or, you know, things are getting worse. I mean, what you're going through, even with your physical health now, Mm -hmm. I wonder if that can be a contribution from the eating disorder. Do they correlate that at all?
0: I don't know. I don't think we've ever really talked about it. With the neuro-oncologist, we did talk about... She was like, well, have you gotten hit on the head? I'm like, not recently. But when you blacked out, did you ever like... I never fell over on the floor. Okay. Because I always blacked out usually when I was getting out of bed or getting up from the couch. Yeah. So usually I just fell back. back. Okay. Um, But in my relationship when I was younger... I got hit on the head all the time. Yeah.
1: I didn't even think about that.
0: I didn't either until she asked, well, have you ever been hit on the head? And I was like, well. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't know when this thing grew. So it could have been from that. It could have been, you know, when I was like seven and my brother and I stretched a cord across (laughs) the house and it It let go before I did. did And it whacked me in the head. (laughs) It could have been when I was younger and someone threw a tickle me Elmo and the. Battery box hit me in the oh my head. Oh, you know, it's people apparently like to hit me in the head. Greg hit me in the head with a Malibu bottle. He was trying to show me his bartending skills, and he lost control of the bottle and it hit me in the head. Okay, so you know, there's a lot of reasons
1: the head trauma period Yeah, there,
0: there's been head trauma, but never really, except for when I was younger. There's never been really trauma to the side of my head. Yeah, and I don't know if there's ever been research done about can eating disorder symptoms cause brain lesions or brain tumors like I don't know um my breathing is probably from everything that's going on and from anxiety and uh, crying too much and because, you know, I was thinking about it the other day. I actually Googled it the other day. I got to stop Googling everything. But it's all just so readily available. Yeah. But um, I Googled something the other day to find out, like, if excessive crying, like, what are the side effects? Because it's gotten to the point, like, I'm having trouble breathing. When I cry, it actually stings. Yeah. Like, my eyes feel like they're burning, burning. when mm-hmm. I cry now. Because I think it's also the fact that, yeah, I'm crying tears. But it's the only tears I have left. Because I'm not hydrated enough to be crying as much as I cry. So, you know, and then with everything else that's gone on, you know, my dad being in the hospital and seeing the neuro-oncologist and Canada leaving and just all the shit that's gone on. Even just the small shit that's gone on, like my computer for work crapping out every day. But, you know, and I, I do think about what you said about, like, how much more can I take? Because every time something happens, I think I, I can't take anything more. And then something else happens. Yeah. And I say it again. I can't take anything more. And I am very strong. I pride myself on being incredibly strong. But it is getting to the point where I.
1: You're tired of being strong.
0: I'm tired. Period. I'm I'm tired of crying. I'm tired of hurting. I'm tired of missing him. I'm tired of recovery. I'm tired of the shit with my family. I'm tired of my dad being sick. I'm tired of my computer's crapping out. I'm <laughs> tired of fucking rain we get every day. Like, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm tired of pretending to be someone that I'm not right now to make other people comfortable. Yeah. Like, I'm just... I'm tired. And... It's not necessarily how much more I can take. It's how much more can I take and still put on this facade that I am. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm not. And. You know, I, I do my very, very best not to bring up the situation around my family. I accidentally said something about him. I think it was yesterday to my mom. Or two days ago. I was telling her a story about one of the times I was in Canada she just got really quiet and then changed the subject. But it was a good memory. Yeah. Funny. I'll tell you about it later. But, um, you know, I, I just am tired of... Because I don't have energy in the first place. Yeah. I'm, I'm very low on energy. And it takes a lot of energy to pretend to be mm-hmm. okay and to, pre- to pretend to be happy. And... Every time I get in the car after I leave my parents, I start crying. Every time I leave work, I start crying. Basically, if I'm in my car, I'm probably crying. Yeah. And at work, I go into the bathroom and I cry and I hyperventilate. And a lot of the time, I just sit on the floor of the bathroom for like 30 minutes and cry because it's taking everything out of me to be around people and laugh and smile and make jokes and be on top of my shit for work and to be okay when really I'm not, I'm not okay. I'm not going to be okay tomorrow. Like this isn't something that I'm just, you know, can snap my fingers and just be okay. I'm not okay. Yeah. And I'm exhausted all the time because it takes everything in me to put a smile on and to eat my meals. Yeah. Those are the two hardest things for me right now are to get through my meals every day and to put on this facade yeah, that right. I'm not completely breaking inside.
1: So, if you could tell our listeners listening what would you think because obviously we know you're struggling in recovery right now, but when you are going strong in recovery, What would be some of the things that you feel like – I don't know how to say this. What would be some things that you could tell people that may be struggling with an eating disorder in recovery to focus on and, like, are a strong point? Like, if you could list things. Like, we talked about an anxiety anchoring is really important or or grounding yourself. Yeah. So in recovery with an eating disorder, what are some things – and it does, again – We always say this. We are not doctors. We are not specialists. We are not therapists. These are just things that we have personally been through and what works. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could try it and it works for you. But when you are strong in recovery, what are some things that you think helped? Get me there? Get you there and kind of stay consistent.
0: So there was a saying when I was in treatment called fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people use it for a lot of reasons. But... For us, it was fake that you're okay till you are. Mm -hmm. Fake fake it till you make it. And I hated that saying. No. Because I was like, you're going to do recovery, do it. Mm -hmm. You're not. You're not. But then situations like this happen. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Kind of what you got to do. But the way that I see fake it till you make it is not necessarily fake it. But for me, when I got into recovery before, not this past time, but before, I got into recovery initially for my family because I just didn't want to see them sad anymore. Yeah. And it wasn't for me. I didn't want it. Even this last bout of recovery, I didn't want it. I don't want to be in recovery, but I didn't want my family to bury me. Yeah. I didn't want even the thought of what it would be like for my mom or for Greg to call people like you or Kim or Emily or John and tell you guys that I'm dead. Yeah. And I couldn't handle that. So I got into recovery and it was hard. It was really hard because I didn't want it. Yeah. I just cared more about you guys than I cared about being in my eating disorder. But over time, you know, when my hair stopped falling out as much. Yeah. You now I dye my hair like every few months and my hair's going to fall out either way. But it wasn't falling out as much and I wasn't blacking out when I got up from bed. And I, you know, my face started clearing up and I wasn't getting like infected zits on my face. Like, you know, I had more energy to go up and down the stairs, to take walks, to tie my shoes. Yeah. You know, those things weren't hard anymore. And I became real. I got to the point where I was realizing how dangerous what I was doing was. Yeah. And... When I'm struggling, it's very hard to think of those things because what I think about more when I'm struggling is the fact that I'm struggling yeah. and not the benefits of recovery, but there are benefits to recovery. You know, the, I'm able to be – when I'm in recovery, I'm able to be more present with my family. I'm able to be more present with my friends, with my nieces and nephews. Yeah. You know, like I can run around with them, you know, when – Landon was small, and even when Madison was small, I didn't have the energy to run around with them.
1: Yeah,
0: I, I, I was there, but I wasn't all there, you know. Especially when Landon was little, you know. Landon's yeah. almost ten. Yeah,
1: that was like in the, the that was you in were the midst of it. of it.
0: Yeah that that was probably some of my hardest times. Yeah, was when Landon was little and. I'm going to be honest. I don't have a lot of memories from when he was a baby. I know I saw him. I have pictures to prove I saw him. Yeah. I have pictures of him with Leaf. I have pictures of him with me. I have pictures with him, you know, sitting by the fire at Megan's parents' house and, you know, just him on my lap. But I remember them because I have the pictures. Yeah. I don't remember being present in those moments. Yeah. And that kills me because Landon's getting to the age where when he sees me, he's not going to want to hug me anymore. Yeah. He's not going to want to cuddle up and watch a movie with me. Also, won't be appropriate for him to do that. <laughs> you know, it won't be that I can just like hold him in the pool. You know, he's getting big. Yeah. At some point soon, he's going to hold me in the pool. <laughs> like, it's. To just... be fair,
1: I'm pretty sure that's going to be all of your nieces and nephews.
0: 100%. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> the only one I've got hope for is maybe Lillian, but I don't know what her biological dad looked like. I think he might've been tall. So yeah, i could be screwed there too. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm going to be screwed with all of them. It's fine. It's cool. With my luck, Greg's children will end up having our grandfather's jeans and they'll shoot up to like six foot one. Great. And then they can carry me too. <laughs> um, But you know, like I miss those times and I wish that I had more memories of those times even though I know they happened. But I wasn't all there. Yeah. So I didn't get to appreciate them as much as I should have. Yeah. And that hurts. Because they are all growing. You know, like even my youngest, you know, Adam's children, Mm -hmm. you know, Micah and Caleb, Caleb's like standing now. And like I saw him in January. He was not standing in January. Yeah. Obviously. But now he's standing, which means, you know, blink of an eye, he's going to be older. Yeah. You know, all all of these kids are growing. And, I, you know, I love that for them. But with the eating disorder, going down that path means I don't have that time with them. And I'm making it a more a bigger possibility that I won't be there for the big moments. Yeah. You know, if I, and that's honestly one of the things that keeps me going in recovery, no matter how much it sucks and no matter how much I want to relapse and use symptoms, I want to be there when Madison gets married. I want to be there when Landon gets married. I want to be there when Caleb gets married. And that's like probably like 20 years from now. (laughs) But if I keep going down the road that I continue to go back to, And go back to that path that I know, I won't be here for those things. Yeah. It's not possible for me to be there for those things because you can only do so much damage to your body before your body just gives up on you. Stops responding. Yeah. And I told that to my friend in New York. She's like, why is all of this happening now? Like, because she was in recovery for a little while, and that's when everything started fucking up. I'm like. Because your body spent so much time taking care of you mm-hmm. that now that you're taking care of you,
1: it doesn't, it, do- it
0: doesn't, it doesn't need to do that for you anymore. Now it can worry about the damage that's been done to yeah. it and you know, she's done so much damage and you know, I'm sure there's damage that I've done to my body that I don't even know about. Yeah. You know, I know about the esophagitis and I know about the gastritis and I know that my gastritis flares up every time I use symptoms. The first time, it's there the next day. Yeah, for like a week. If I only do it once, if I do it more than once, it's all hell breaks loose. Yeah, but I I know some of what I'm in for if I relapse. And there are some days I don't care. Let me be honest about that. There are some days I don't give a shit. Yeah, where I'm just like, eh, it's what it does. And unfortunately, that's my answer for most things right now. It's it's just, it is what it is. Can't change it. You know, I I can't change that Canada's gone. No matter how hard I'd like to try, I can't change it. I can't change that my dad was in the hospital and my dad was sick. I can't change what's in my brain. I can't change currently the breathing issues until I figure out what they are. I can't. There's nothing that I can change. Yeah. So my just motto now is just, it is what it is. And when it comes to Ed, unfortunately, that is also how I think of things. It is what it is. Yeah. If I relapse, I relapse. If I don't, I don't. There's just a lot of me that currently does not care. And I hate that. Yeah. I really do. Because I don't want, people to worry you know I don't I don't want my family to not trust me again yeah you know I that was it was very hard to come back from that having spent over a decade almost two decades lying to them yeah and coming back from that felt unbearable at times because it's annoying yeah honestly it's very annoying when You have six people asking, did you eat today? What did you eat today? Did you eat enough today? How much of it did you eat? Do you need this? Do you need that? You know, like, and if I I skipped a meal or I missed a meal because I was too busy, well, that's not good. You really have to work on that. Make sure you don't do that tomorrow. And I'm just like, I get it. Mm -hmm. But you telling me that I need to eat, you reminding me that I need to eat, isn't going to make a difference. Yeah. I know when I don't eat. Because I do it on purpose. Yeah. So it's not that I forget. So I don't need the reminder. I'm actively choosing not to eat. And I think just like I do that to gain control, I think that's why my family does that. Yeah. Is because that's their way of trying to control the situation and deal with the situation is by reminding me and I guess feeling like they're doing everything they can do Mm -hmm. to make it so that I don't fall backwards. But, you know, they're very, especially currently, I mean, the the only, except for apparently every person that listens to this podcast, um, the only person I've talked to about my eating issues recently is you. Because, and I even said it in the text that I sent to you is I know that you're not going to judge me. No. Like I know, I know you'll worry, mm-hmm. but I know you're not going to judge me for it. I know you're not going to be like, well, that's crazy. Yeah. Like there's no going to be, there's not going to be any underlining like disgust or, you know, it's just, I know that I can just talk to you about it. And you know, I, I've been very good about asking for support when I need it. Mm-hmm. But with the situation that's going on right now, I can't ask for support from my family. Yeah. Because they're
1: they not, don't. They're not supportive.
0: They don't understand why I need the support. Yeah. They don't understand why this is impacting me so much. Yeah, And, like, even I was talking to John the other day, and he was like, I don't get it. You didn't know him that long. You can't possibly feel that way for him. And like, time makes no difference. No. He's like, yes, it does. No, it doesn't. And in my head, I'm like, you took two and a half years to decide that you were in love with me after knowing me for 13 years. Yeah. Like, you're not really the best person to judge on this. No. But, you know, that's his opinion. And that's fine. He's allowed to have his opinion. I just don't agree with it. Yeah. You know, I, I know what I felt. The moment that I met Canada, I know what I felt every moment I got to talk to him or be with him or see his face or hear his voice. I, I know what went on inside my body when that happened. Yeah. And I know it still happens. You know, I, I listen to his voice messages a lot, probably shouldn't, but I do. Um, and I just hear them in my head when I'm not listening to them, but, um, they still have the same effect. Yeah. Like, you know, it it hasn't changed, which is why I don't think it's getting easier. It's because it's not, you know, like, he left and I fell out of love with him. It doesn't work like that. If you truly love someone, you don't just fall out of love because they left. Yeah. You know, he did throw me away. It doesn't change how I feel for him. Yeah. And that makes it hard because... I'm getting to the point now because it's not getting easier and because he's not coming back that I kind of really do want to numb out how I felt. Yeah. Because it's starting, it's starting to get painful Mm -hmm. to remember how happy I was and to know that that's not now. Yeah. And that's getting, that's getting to be the thing that I just can't handle. Cause it was, it was taken from me
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I don't understand it. And each day that it doesn't get easier. And each day where I hyperventilate and cry on the floor of the bathroom at work is just another day where I think, you know what? I know a way not to feel this anymore. Yeah. And I work on it in therapy. I talk to you about it. But it doesn't help. It doesn't go away. Yeah, it, do, it doesn't help make it easier. It, it does, does help. Having that outlet to talk helps. But at the end of the day, at the end of the night, when I say goodnight to him, mm-hmm. it's me in nightmare saying goodnight. Yeah. And there's no one sending it back. And so right now I am in a very delicate situation with recovery because you're right. Most of my triggers are relationship based. Yeah. And I think the only thing that's really helped me over the years to get into recovery and to keep me in recovery is those reminders of how bad it could be. Yeah. And also, the reminders of what it does to my family and in my darkest moments right now honestly one of the things that keeps me going in recovery which is so weird is i don't want to die in my apartment and my cats just be there and no one know and my cats or cats, they're they're not gonna be able to call 911. They're not they're just yeah. gonna, you know, Cordelia when I'm sleeping, if I haven't moved or anything like that, she nudges me and like headbutts me to make sure that I'm okay. Yeah. I don't want there ever to be a point where she does that and I don't respond. Yeah. Like as much as it would destroy me if something happened to my girls, mm-hmm. I feel like it would be the same on the other side. Yeah. If something happened to me, I think it would hurt my girls. And that's kind of a strange thing that keeps me going. No, I mean, right. they're,
1: they're like the kids. Yeah. So I feel like that's 100% valid.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It would be if you physically had children. I mean, it would be the same way you wouldn't want your child to find you yep. and realizing the pain that they would be in. So I feel like that's valid. What would you say, because I feel like we did this with the anxiety episode as well. um, What are good resources?
0: Um, Honestly, one of the best resources is NIDA. Mm -hmm. NIDA is the National Eating Disorder Awareness. Um, They are uh, online. Their website has so much information. It also has information on the places you can call in your own state. Bonita is nationwide, so it doesn't matter where you are. They are there to help you. They have a helpline. They have information about eating disorders, um, all types of eating disorders. Um, If you live in South Florida, the Alliance in Palm Beach also has great resources, and they also have groups. Joanne who runs the Alliance is a wonderful woman. She's, she's truly an incredible person and groups that she runs are amazing. Even during COVID, I did some of the groups with her and the ones with her were just so helpful, even though it was like 70 people on the the groups and I didn't want to talk because that's just too many fucking people. (laughs) Um, but everything she said was so validating and you know, she's really, really great. Um, Honestly, the best one is Nita. <clears throat> You're looking into treatment. Timberland Knowles mm-hmm. is a wonderful place. I've heard wonderful things about Timberland Knowles. I went to Renfrew um, for everything. So I went to Renfrew for residential. I went for a day, and I went for the, like, 10 times I went to IOP. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they are at now, because I haven't been in treatment in a long time. Yeah. But a few years or before COVID, I would not have advised anyone to go to Renfrew. Yeah. Because they lost their way, I think, a lot. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't advise that. Um there's a place I think in Arizona can't remember the name right now but there is a really residential facility in Arizona that I have a few friends that they went there and it's great and I think that's the place they actually have horse therapy okay
1: so you I th- therapy
0: yeah so I think that there's you know a lot of treatment places have different means of treatment you know they all have groups mm-hmm. which is great if you can find a group to go to that makes you comfortable do that but I would stay away from anorexics anonymous, overeaters anonymous, binge eater anonymous, purging anonymous, bulimia, whatever. I would stay away from those groups because they are run by people that are still using symptoms or just got into recovery. And there are not a lot of rules. So like for me, numbers make me very uncomfortable when people tell me their weight and stuff like that. Yeah they talk about weight in those groups. They talk about symptom use and what symptoms they're using and how they did them. And, you know, that's just not safe. That's not healthy because all you're doing is one, you're making people realize that maybe they're not quote sick enough. Mm -hmm. And two, you're giving them ideas on how to be sicker. Yeah. So I just Mm -hmm. don't like those groups, but the groups run by Renfrew or run by the Alliance or, you know, places like that, reputable places. Are really really great um art therapy mm-hmm. there's a wonderful art therapist I don't think she's in Florida anymore I think she told me that she moved I don't remember where she moved to um but her name's Karen Pollen she is an incredible eating disorder art therapy person um she's wonderful but art therapy is very helpful even if you're not artistic yeah I'm not an artistic person for like drawing and stuff like that writing yeah. I'm good but other than that I'm horrible i can't draw a stick figure um but art therapy is still very helpful because it doesn't matter yeah it doesn't matter if it looks good it doesn't matter if it's you know picasso or van gogh or whatever it's you know it's how you're expressing yourself yeah um and honestly working with any animal
1: yeah i've heard i, I feel like any kind of recovery when you're dealing with mental health or an addiction hmm working with an animal is always very therapeutic because I feel like animals are the purest form of love Mm -hmm. and adoration. Yeah. Um, So I feel like the bond that you create with them kind of maybe fills the void that you are feeling.
0: I think also it helps because you have something to take care of.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: You know, you you have something beyond yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. And I remember, I thought the same about, you know, I've heard the same about having children. Yeah. Because I have friends that I've met in treatment that have children now. And I remember one of them, I asked her, because when we met, she was very, very sick. Yeah. And I asked her how she dealt with pregnancy and how she dealt with her body changing. And she said that at first, it was very difficult. So, but once you hear the heartbeat, once you feel a kick, it's no longer about you. Yeah. It's now about what you're, you've created. Yeah. And she's like, and she's like, if you know, you're a good mother, that connection that you're building with that child while they're inside of you. Yeah. You just want to protect them. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what you want because all that matters is that they're okay. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's fair. But with me, I'm very scared of being pregnant. Yeah. I'm not scared of giving birth. I don't give a fuck. I got a high pain tolerance and they got drugs. I'm fine. I don't give a shit about giving birth. I care about the nine months to get there. Yeah, Because I don't want... Because I can't take any of my medication. And I don't want to be that person that is so selfish that because my body changes, I restrict food from the life that I'm growing. Yeah. And I know that in order for me to get pregnant and have a baby and do all that stuff, i need a very, very supportive partner. Yeah. Because that's going to be a very hard time for me. And probably after, too, because...
1: Right. Yeah, afters. I feel like even if you don't have an eating disorder, the recovery and postpartum is very, very, very hard mm-hmm. on anybody because yeah. there yeah. it's a control thing, mm-hmm. and you have no control over it anything in mm-hmm. postpartum and that's why a lot of women struggle with postpartum depression mm-hmm. because no matter what you, there's no, there's nothing that can help you.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I, I get that. Um, I feel like that's valid.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I remember when I had first met you and I don't know if we had talked about this where you were scared of numbers, Yeah. but you were scared of triple digits when you stepped on the scale.
0: Yep, I didn't reach triple digits till into my 20s.
1: And I remember you, there was one point that I was, when we were living together, and you had said something about, like, I think you were, like, 96 pounds.
0: Something like that, yeah.
1: And you had a meltdown. Mm-hmm.
0: My body shut down when I got to that. Yeah. My body would actually, I didn't have to do anything. Because if I got anywhere near between 96 and 98 pounds, I would, Um, my body would shut down. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to hold down anything. I ate. Yeah. and i was never hungry because my body i had i had such a deep seated fear of reaching triple digits that it actually became like physically i was not able to get there yeah um i'm honestly to this day not sure how i got there but whatever doesn't yeah. matter but yeah no i i was terrified of triple digits oh my god that was like the biggest fear i remember and i remember thinking to
1: myself like hmm because i had never known you know what i mean Mm -hmm. how intense an eating disorder could be i mean you see it in movies you see Mm -hmm. it you know lifetime has a shit ton of movies on it and
0: there's that one on uh, netflix to the bone
1: that movie scared the shit out of me. i won't watch it it scared the fucking shit out of me
0: i have a few friends that watched it but they just got ideas from it
1: it scared the shit out of me.
0: Yeah, I, I can't watch it. I've watched like the commercials for it, where she's like counting the calories. Yeah, and like it scared me in the doctor's office, and I'm like,
1: yeah. And I don't think I correlated. Like, I didn't watch it and be like, oh my god, that's Al- that's Allie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was just scary for me to watch it because it was showing me the reality of what an eating disorder, how severe it can be, mm-hmm. and what it can do. Yeah. Um. Because again, you know, it really wasn't until we became friends that I even really knew what Ed was, yeah. other than the knowledge I got from reports in health class or movies or shows. Yeah. So I think it's really important that if you are listening and it's maybe something you've struggled with or you know someone to look at the resources, um, but to also realize that if you know someone that is struggling with an eating disorder, to realize that the path is not linear. It's not a straight path. Mm -hmm. You will go in zigzags. You will go in circles. You will go up and down. You will go back and forth. Um, But I think the constant that I can say as someone who has someone that I, I love that's gone through it for so long is to shift your focus and understand that what you think is a norm is not and be open to having difficult discussions Mm -hmm. and trying to understand because, you know, I feel like it's very easy to get frustrated with any kind of addiction because you don't understand why someone is doing it Mm -hmm. um, and you just want to make it better. But I feel like when you are open and you hear, you know, like hearing about you waking up every morning and making that decision, and the, the de- you know like the devil's advocate choices mm-hmm. and the conversations that you have, um I feel like it's more eye-opening, um, and it also helps me to know that not that I want to play to that part, but kind of find ways around so that I when I speak to you, I don't trigger
0: mm-hmm. that part. I think it's also important to understand triggers. Yes. And to understand, you know, how you talk to people. Mm -hmm. Because, like, I've had nurses that I've gone to literally to get blood to go into treatment. And then tell me, wow, you're so thin. I wish I had your self-control. Yeah. And I'm just like. You have no idea really? Like, it's in my chart I have an eating disorder. Yeah. In every chart I have, it's there. Like,
1: the it fuck? It they do not read the charts.
0: But it's also, like, you don't know what people are going through. Yeah. Even if it wasn't in my chart, you don't know what the fuck I'm going through. Don't automatically assume that everything is okay. Yeah. And for parents of young girls... Your child does not need to earn dessert. Your child does not need to earn their food. And when you instill that in a six year old and you instill that in a young child or a young teen girl who's going through puberty, you are instilling that she needs to earn the right to eat something that we need to do to survive. And I heard little girls in Publix talk about their weight and talk about, you know, I don't look, ve- I don't look okay today. I can't have dessert tonight. Yeah. And no child should ever say that to their no. parents. And the fact of the matter is, is they didn't learn it on their own. And let's be very
1: clear, not giving your child dessert because they didn't eat their dinner and are not giving themselves the nutrients is completely different than not rewarding them for a behavior or something they didn't do.
0: Absolutely. I'm talking about the instance of like, you know, there are parents that will weigh their children. Yeah. I saw a little girl being weighed at Publix and her mom was telling her, Oh, you're doing great. You're down three pounds. I'm like, first off, you're on a public scale. Yeah. That's not going to tell you like accurate shit. Yeah. Because everyone is different. Mm -hmm. And I said, second of all, what the fuck are you doing to your child? Yeah. Like, this girl must have been, like, eight or nine. Why is she worrying about losing weight? And she was not, like, an obese child. Yeah. It wasn't. She's a little girl. She's a little girl. And she shouldn't be on the scale at Publix. Yeah. You know, she shouldn't, like, you should be, we need to be instilling in children, not just little girls, in children, children, that... They are beautiful. I don't give a fuck what you look like. I don't care about your weight. I don't care about your color. I don't care about your religion. I don't care if all I see is your eyes. I don't give a shit. Every child is beautiful because those things need to stop mattering. Yeah. Because then you get to the point where you have, you know, the, the modeling industry and, you know, those girls are photoshopped, but little girls want to be them. Because they think there's something wrong with their bodies, and there's not. Yeah, and you know, for for parents that have girls that are going through puberty, puberty was the hardest part for me because I went through puberty much earlier mm-hmm. than the other girls in my class. So my body was changing, and when my girl, when the girls in my class were getting closer to puberty, I already had boobs. Yeah. So that was very different. I had hips. I had you know. I had boobs in second grade. So. Yeah, I had I had you know a figure. And they didn't. And I got bullied for it. And I wanted to change it. And that's when the eating disorder started. Yeah. And there is a scientific correlation between puberty and eating eating disorders. disorders. And so for parents that have children that are going through puberty...
1: Let them eat the damn popsicle.
0: Let them eat the popsicle. (laughs) But also do your research and find a way to talk to them. Because I think an issue that goes on is you don't know what people are saying to them at school. No. And they may not tell you. No. But the fact of the matter is, is puberty makes everyone uncomfortable. You start to smell, you start to grow hair, you start, everything changes. Mm -hmm. The hormones kick in. And with hormones, you get more emotional too. Mm -hmm. So what may have been able to be brushed off before is not going to be brushed off now. Because now they feel different. And so also if you're listening and you are concerned about someone in your life, talk to them. Don't be, don't be accusatory. Don't be like, oh, I know you didn't eat meals for the last week. Or, oh, I heard you throwing up or whatever. Don't attack them. But talk to them. Ask in a the
1: non-confrontational way.
0: Absolutely. Even if you just talk to them about, you know, like your insecurities and give them an open forum to feel comfortable to be vulnerable with you because you have been vulnerable with them. Yeah. But give them an open space to talk. If you're a parent and you're worried about your child, my mom and I use the box. Yeah. we've talked about it in a previous episode. You know, we have this figurative box That we go into, and I can't get in trouble. I can't, you know, get yelled at. She just has to listen with no judgment, and we can figure out a plan. And if you both respect the box, it is an open forum for your child to talk. And sometimes that's the only way to get children to talk, is for them to not think they're getting in trouble. Even if it's not something that would get them in trouble. Yeah. But, like, something that scares them, something Mm -hmm. that makes them uncomfortable.
1: We just, I just had this with David. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's huge is being able to have those discussions, Mm -hmm. especially starting young because that's the time that it's going to start.
0: Yep. And I think that's something that is important also is how you talk about yourself. Yeah. Because your children are watching. Mm -hmm. That's where I learned body hatred was in dressing rooms in stores with my mom when I was little and hearing her be herself. She didn't say anything to me. There's something wrong with me, but she hated her. Yeah. And I learned that. And that's not, you know, I'm not blaming my mother for my eating disorder. No, but that did impact how I viewed myself yeah. and the fears I had of gaining weight. Because, to me, my mom hated herself because of her weight. Yeah. And if I gained weight, then I would have a reason to hate myself. So I was never good enough for myself. So it's very important to pay attention to how you talk about yourself, how you talk to your children, you know, how we talk to each other. Look in – the internet is a scary, big place. It's got a lot of really, really valid information – NIDA has information on if you are a parent of a child with an eating disorder or you think your child has an eating disorder or your sibling has an eating disorder or a parent. You know, NIDA has information for all of that. They are a great resource when it comes to eating disorders. And if you have questions, call them. Call a hotline. And that's not just for eating disorders. If you have questions about anxiety or you are anxious, call a hotline you're having suicidal thoughts, call a hotline. If you're having issues with addiction, call a hotline. Because those are amazing resources, and those people are there to help. So,
1: yeah. Okay. we'll cool in there. Mm-hmm. And we're going to elaborate more. We talked about, you know, having your mom on mm-hmm. and giving that perspective. And then maybe we can go into more depth of certain kinds of eating disorders.
0: We can. We just have to be careful with yes. that because I don't want to, you know, trigger, trigger people, trigger me or trigger people yeah. that could be listening. So
1: um, I think we'll end there. Like Ali said, there's great resources. Just do your research if you know somebody's struggling with it. Watch how you approach it. Um, and, yeah, I guess stay tuned
0: and we will continue to talk about it. Also, if you want to use us or me as a resource for eating disorders, again, I'm not a professional, but I have lived with it almost my entire life, you can reach out to our Instagram Mm -hmm. um, and ask a question. Yes. You're more than welcome to ask any questions that you want. If I don't have an answer because I don't have the experience with it, I can find a place to direct you. Yeah. So please use this as an open forum to talk about what you need to talk about.
1: Yep. Stay tuned.